Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The St. Louis Art Museum is home to 39 Max Beckman paintings and about 400 Beckman works on paper. St. Louis's Beckman paintings collection is widely considered the greatest such collection in the world and one of the greatest concentrations of any artist's work in any American art museum. A new book, Max Beckman at the St. Louis Art Museum, published by Pristel and out this month, is the first comprehensive catalog of St. Louis's amazing Beckman collection. It's a marvelous book. It's a lot more than a look at one artist at one museum. The book was written by this week's guest, art historian Lynette Roth. She began working on the project as a Mellon Fellow in St. Louis. Now she's a curator at the Harvard Art Museums, focusing on modern and contemporary art from German-speaking countries. Before working in St. Louis and at Harvard, Roth curated the 2008 exhibition Cologne Progressives, 1920-1933, for the Ludwig Museum, a show which traveled to the Art Gallery of Ontario. Lynette Roth for the full program after the break. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatawando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Lynette Roth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The St. Louis Art Museum has the greatest Max Beckmann collection in the world, 39 paintings, about 400 works on paper. It's one of the best single artist collections at any museum, not just, not just the best single artist collection of Beckmann. So to start, I guess probably we should get out of the way an explanation of how the heck that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's a question. Actually, I, I got a lot as I was working on the book for folks who don't you know, live in St. Louis or aren't necessarily steeped in the German art of the 20th century, as you or I perhaps say, they said, well, why St. Louis? And of course, the most obvious explanation is that Beckmann himself went there. So that's sort of where I normally start. He left Germany in, in 37 uh, for Amsterdam, where he ends up spending 10 years during the Second World War and then you know can't actually leave Amsterdam right away after the war and in 47 comes to St. Louis and is uh, teaching at Washington University. And so his presence there obviously bolstered by the St. Louis Art Museum, uh, which was then the, the city art museum. They did an exhibition of his work in 48, so, you know, really kind of promoting him in St. Louis. But most importantly for why the museum ended up with this incredible collection is the, the work of one man, one collector, and that was the uh, local department store magnate Morton D. May. So but now 34 of the 39 works in the St. Louis collection uh, came from May. And he collected those works, actually bought his first Beckman before meeting Beckman personally, even though Beckman was actually also in St. Louis, and then finds out uh, that Beckman's in St. Louis and, and then begins to collect both still during Beckman's own lifetime. Beckman passed away in 1950 and then continues on to amass really the largest private collection of, of Beckman's work and gives 35 of those paintings as a bequest to the to the museum and 1983. So it was really a, a game changer for 
not just the work of Beckmann in St. Louis, but but also the work of of German 20th century artists. Yeah, the the May the May gift ended up kind of being the impetus for St. Louis's deep dive into 20th and 21st century German art. It probably has the best modern and contemporary German collections uh, outside of New York of any museum in America. So the St. Louis Beckmann collection covers the entire, I mean, covers his entire oeuvre, his entire life. The, the, the paintings start in 1907 in the collection and go, go through pretty much to the very end. And there are 39 of them. We're not going to talk about every painting, of course. But what's great about the St. Louis collection is that you can kind of move through it and move through Beckmann's entire career and hit everything. So one of the kind of key moments in Beckman's life, of course, is World War I, which changes his work really substantially. St. Louis has a major, probably the major painting uh, Beckman made before World War I, the 1912-1913 painting, Sinking of the Titanic, which to American eyes is kind of bellows-esque in its big, brushy drama. And one of the two most important paintings of the immediate post-World War I period, Christ in the Sinner which along with Descent from the Cross at MoMA is kind of the major 1917 painting. How does Beckman get from Sinking of the Titanic to, to these two 1917 paintings? How does the war change him? Well, I think the war changed, I mean, like many of his contemporaries, the war, you know, changed him drastically. We see in the Sinking of the Titanic and, and a number of other uh, works of that period, you know, still a very ambitious young painter who's, you know, he actually had quite quite amount of success prior to the the First World War. He was actually seen as sort of the the young hope for the secession, the Berlin secession, which was, you know, sort of reacting at the time to academic traditions and um, and in its, itself, by the time Beckmann joins, uh, is already kind of become an institution in and of itself. So so there is a kind of, you know, massive ambition with a painting like the Titanic, and you can see that, you know, alone in its size. It's 11, it's 11 feet wide and about nine feet tall. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it actually, you know, it kind of takes you over, right? You have this incredible motion of the water and, you know, these figures, you know, sort of stuffed in their, in their lifeboats and, you know, and you actually, as a viewer, you know, feel like you're, you're sort of right in the, in the thick of it. And it's actually extremely colorful, which is something I hope uh, comes across uh, for those who can't see it um, at the museum. We'll have images but, of it on manpodcast.com. Yeah, that it's, you know, it's really for, for a long time was, you know, seen as kind of a, you know, dark or a, almost talked about in terms of its, you know, black colors. And there's actually literally like no black <laughs> in the painting. So, you know, so you have this young, this young, uh, successful, ambitious painter. And, you know, like many, many of the artists who, who fought or experienced the First World War, Beckmann actually volunteered as a medical orderly and, you know, really did see a lot of uh, wounded soldiers on the front lines. Uh, strangely, later, he, he kind of acts as if he sort of woke up. He, there's a, there's a, a quote in which he says, you know, I kind of, there was, there was sort of a darkness or a blackout and I, and I woke up in the, in the uniform of a medical orderly. So he sort of, you know, later also mythologizes in some way this, um, this decision, right, to, to, to go and, and volunteer as a medical orderly. And he, you know, he sees the horrors of the war and is sketching constantly. They're writing letters to his wife, which are actually being published at the time about sort of what he's seeing. And uh, eventually, although the, the details of it are, are murky, has a, a nervous breakdown and leaves and goes to Frankfurt and then begins or continues, I should say, to, to paint. And there we see this incredible shift from these thick, colorful and pasted canvases of the of the pre-war moment to you know extremely reduced cool palette you know, thinly applied paint and the majority of the work are either you know several very important self-portraits from that period at the end of the first world war and then the deposition and Christ in the Center in the in the St. Louis Art Museum this kind of turned towards religious christian themes which is also a very is symptomatic of, of the time in Germany or across Europe. You know, I, I 
I can't speak really to outside of, of Germany. I think, you know, certainly in Germany, the, the trajectory that even a contemporary of, of Beckmann's, a major supporter of his work, Gustav Hartlaub, who's at the director or deputy director and the Kanze director of the Kunsthalle Mannheim and it shows Beckmann's work throughout the 20s, you know, sees a kind of turn to, you know, a new sort of religious art, you know, where where is the, uh, or what is the ability of modern art to, you know, be a new sort of uh, religious or spiritual source in a time, of course, of great fear and, and really disillusionment from from the war. And, uh, and Beckmann sort of partakes in, in that um, sort of turn to Christian imagery, but he does so fairly isolated from his contemporaries. So what's so interesting about Christ and the Sinner is that he, he really thought of it and not just its sort of pendant painting. They have, you know, the same, the MoMA canvas, uh, the deposition, they have the same... Right. They have the same dimensions. They have a very similar palette. You know, the, they may have actually been conceived as, as pendant paintings, but he actually painted both of those within a, a larger series of religious pictures that he felt he needed to kind of finish all of them. So actually thinking about these works, not just those two, but thinking about all of these canvases with, with Christian imagery, Adam and Eve. Yeah, let me fill that in for just a moment. So in, in the four years after Beckman leaves leaves the front, he finishes only 13 paintings. And he writes letters in which he talks about not wanting to show them until they're all done, not, not wanting to show any one of them until they're all done. Right, exactly. So it is this kind of, I think he's aware at the time that, you know, he's, his work is is shifting, right? I mean, I think this emphasis on, you know, I I need to finish these works, you know, my time hasn't come yet to actually show them, to debut them publicly. I talk a little bit about in the book, it's also, you know, could be seen as a kind of strategy as well, right? So when the works that he does from the end of the First World War until 1919, when they finally are debuted in 1919, it's it comes as quite a shock, obviously, for for the you know the art public and and the critics who are responding to his work, and they are very quick to equate, obviously, this dramatic shift in his in his work to the war, and the canvas has become a kind of it's become symbolic of, you know, the zeitgeist, really, in, in the immediate post-war period. And from there, uh, again, Beckmann, although he'd had those successes early on uh, in his career, begins to sort of, you know, develop a new a new prominence, really, in, in Germany. So the St. Louis collection goes from Christ in the Center in 1917 to the Dream in 1921, one of the things that both of these paintings do is really shallow out space in, in, in paintings, in, in Beckman's paintings. And I guess one way of thinking of them is when Beckman comes out of the war and begins to remake what his art is, you know, he never becomes anything close to a cubist, but he's certainly, I think, certainly, would you agree, looking at Picasso here? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Picasso remains actually his greatest rival for, you know, for his entire lifetime. And actually, you know, that was one reason for sort of thinking about Paris and, you know, the the, the sort of Paris-centric feelings actually in, in Europe at the time, right? I mean, Paris was, you know, the, the place to be if you, if you wanted to actually sort of compete on a, an international stage with, with your, your artwork. And I think uh, in terms of shallowing out space, I, I think, you know, obviously both, both Christ in the Center and the Dream, you know, do that in such a, such an obvious way in, in that the, the ground itself is, you know, literally sort of tilting towards us, flipping towards us, um, as if, you know, as if the figures could just literally in the Dream sort of slide right off the canvas. The bottom figure almost is sliding off of the canvas with her legs up in the air, yeah. And that's really what he becomes then, you Know, known for uh, at the time, and there's a lot of discussion about that of, of you know his sort of treatment of space and also the kind of anxious. I mean, in the dream, you know, the the actual kind of anxiousness in the viewer that 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 pictorial strategy actually causes. But if if you look back to Titanic, you can see there as well that you know space. He's already <laughs> there, and and that's what I I think is so fantastic about the the collection in St. Louis is that you can go back to that and you can say actually, you know, 
space is completely, you know, shot up towards us as well, right? Which is what gives us this feeling, I think, of being completely immersed. And and space was an issue, you know, in those early years that he struggled with, that there were criticisms that he, he didn't understand space. He didn't know how to place figures in space. And he, and I think, you know, as, as we go through his entire career, we see these various ways of actually tackling that question of how, you know, how is he dealing with the three-dimensional space of the outside world, you know, on the, the two-dimensional surface. And his solutions are incredible, and, and, but, but almost different at every, at every turn. Those critics were right. The early paintings, he has no idea what to do with space. And you can see, and you can see him figure it out and, and turn it into the thing at which he's best, possibly. Well, and that's, I have to say, though, Tyler, it was something that I, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you, and I, we don't have to spend too much time on the, on the early paintings, but it was something that I, I actually acquired a, a new respect in many ways for, for what the, you know, it's, that's sort of the typical story, right, is, oh, well, Beckman, he didn't really know what he was doing, and he was actually a little overly ambitious and maybe a little too young and had a little too much bravado, and, you know, and he was very confident, you know, towards, towards the outside world, but, you know, his, his diaries, what we have from that period reveals, you know, this struggle with space and these kinds of concerns. But, you know, with a work like Scene from the Destruction of Messina, you know, when you actually think about what he's depicting, I started to read these kind of of criticisms of, you know, the, the figure in space, the way that it feels theatrical, the way that, you know, it feels like we're looking at models, right, and not at, you know, not at actual figures who are experiencing, you know, this, this moment of crisis. And actually, you know, part of me began to see it anew, because as you read those kinds of reports, you realize you know, the city did look like a stage set based on the photographs that, that Beckman was also working from. And, and, and so in some way, I, I've, I would like to temper that kind of, you know, narrative a bit that, you know, he sort of figured out how to paint with those, those works at the end of the First World War, if I may, because that's, you know, that was sort of the, the lesson, I think, that the, that the St. Louis collection taught me, or I think can, can teach one. That's the value, I think, of those of, of those early of those early works as well. One of the interesting things about the dream is it's a good example, in fact, a really early example of Beckman introducing kind of his particular iconography, an iconography which you know in, in the in the hundred years since has become kind of famously mysterious. So in the dream, we have a man on a ladder who is holding a fish under his arm, and we see fish, for example, recurring in Beckman for several decades. One of the things, and, and art, so art historians have um, had great fun and probably earned a lot of PhDs over the years by trying to lot, decode yeah. <laughs> decode <laughs> all of these all of these oddities, these fascinating little oddities in in Beckman paintings. For the most part, I mean, not completely, but for the most part, you chose to leave that alone in in what you wrote and not to take sides, not to be determinative. And I thought that was an interesting choice, and I was wondering why you made it. Well, I think, you know, when you read the Beckman literature, and there is a lot, you know, that that is really, you know, and was for many, many years, you know, that was the approach. Um, it was iconographical. There was an attempt, you know, whether you were emphasizing, you know, his reading of Nietzsche or whether you were emphasizing, you know, uh, the sort of artistic context that he was coming from or his own psychology, you know, the, the readings, you know, kind of kept coming and coming. And there was a moment with uh, Hans Belting in the 1980s where this was sort of made very clear. He said, you know, this is kind of where the scholarship has been. And I really agreed with that. I really thought, you know, I think uh, also we, we think differently nowadays. Um, I think, you know, my my approach is a much more historiographical approach. I was actually in the book very interested in the life of the of the canvas itself. So, you know, how did it, I mean, starting with that question, right, why St. Louis, right? How did this work actually end up in St. Louis, Missouri, because I think it could tell us a lot actually about the reception of German art and, and, and not to lose oneself in, you know, what I, I think becomes clear in reading my, my accounts are 
often opposing readings, uh, iconographical readings, and you know, and quite frankly, I didn't feel that it, I needed to add to that long, <laughs> long list of of interpretations, which you know, which are often very compelling, and and I suppose when I when I found them compelling, you know, I spent a little bit more more time with them. It's something actually in the museum itself. When I was in St. Louis, you know, that's what visitors are curious about, of course, and I I completely understand that. So it's it's there, but it's not not something where I felt obliged in many ways to, you know, as a contribution. You know, when you look at how much has been written about Beckman, how much ink has been spilled, it felt, you know, a contribution might be to kind of actually for, also for an American or English language readers, to kind of sum it up, right? Sort of say, okay, we've, we've had this interpretation, we've had that interpretation, you know, and then they should look at the painting and judge for themselves, you know, do they find that compelling, you know, is that urine coming out of the, of the woman's dress in the dream, or is it straw, you know, I mean, depending on which interpretation you take, you can take it in in very different directions. So kind of the last painting in this section of the book I wanted to talk about was the Harbor of Genoa, a 1927 painting that marks Beckman's first, or one of his first uses of the big, broad, flat, passages and areas of black. Two questions on the painting. Where do you think that those those big kind of almost dominant passages of black come from? And two, is this an anti-fascist painting? Okay. Well, I think the the, the black, um, I mean, really in 1927, you know, and it's something that his contemporaries, that critics, especially Kurt Glaser, whose portrait by Beckman is also in this, the St. Louis Art Museum collection, but, but what these contemporaries really noticed, and that was that Beckman's style had really shifted from from a canvas like the Dream, where there isn't actually a whole lot of paint on that canvas. Um, in fact, you actually can see in some areas the underdrawing, the way he handles black, and that is much more as line. Um, it's a much more graphic. I mentioned that you know you can almost think of it much more in tune with his graphic art production of the period, which was so important to him. Etching became very important to him at, you know, in the early 20s. And when we get to, to the Genoa canvas, you know, although there is a lot of sort of detail in, in the, you know, the cityscape in the background, you know, this, this work of this period was seen as being literally a, a return to painting, uh, which was a funny thing to think about because you say, well, how can a, you know, it's not like he ever stopped painting. It wasn't like George Gross, who, you know, George Gross literally sort of stopped painting. And, uh, but Beckman, of course, you know, those were the works. And, you know, at the moment where you're getting a, a discussion of Neuzaklichkeit, which is typically more associated with a sort of less impasted canvas or less thickly applied paint. And it's not that there's actually so much paint on, on the Genoa canvas either, but these kinds of planar structures, the way in which it almost feels in certain parts that it sort of fits together like a puzzle piece. You know, this is this is very new for Beckman. And the black, of course, in this canvas has been thought about in terms of fascist Italy at the, at the period um, that Beckman, you know, was well aware of developments in Europe at the time and, and that possibly this reflection on the city of Genoa, which is, you know, a very industrialized city, could have also been a critique of, of you know, of fascism. And, uh, and there are other canvases at the time. It's really Barbara Binger, who's who's done um, a lot of work uh, thinking about this particular moment and thinking about Beckman's work from his Frankfurt. It's, now he's in Frankfurt and he's, he's well established and he's teaching and um, she's thought a lot about his Frankfurt period and how, you know, some of these works, you know, we don't read this, although he was on vacation, we don't read this, not the sort of sunny, you know, vacation uh, depiction of, of, of the Italian seascape that we get in, in some of his other seascapes or depictions of the French Riviera there, you know, the, the black gives us that feeling of, you know, I describe it as sort of, you know, that, that nighttime um, sort of feeling where all this sort of bustling is maybe starting to sort of settle down uh, a little bit. And so, yeah, I'm actually quite, quite compelled by, by, by the, the understanding of it as, you know, if, if not a critique of fascism, certainly a, 
a response. And that's something that Beckman, you know, Beckman always is kind of, you know, he's, he's responding, but, but it's never overt. And this is something he, he because he doesn't believe in actually that, that it's art's role to sort of participate in, you know, the politics of, uh, you know, day-to-day politics or the sort of, you know, discussions of the, of the day, but that it which, which hasn't stopped art historians from trying to find it in the work ever since. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you know, and that, and that's, and to, and to get back to this question of the sort of iconographical readings, right? That's where I think a lot of those, you know, in some ways, you know, have sort of pushed our thinking about Beckman further and made us, you know, think about his politics. On the other hand, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, seeing, seeing something that literally isn't there. And I think that's, you know, that's always that sort of, you know, tough negotiation as an art historian is, you know, how much, how much are you kind of wanting, wanting to, wanting to see it. And, and that's why I feel that the, for this particular painting, however, Barbara Binger has pointed that out, the, the actual context of, of the painting. Um, I mentioned it, um, it was actually attacked when it was shown in Mannheim in 1928. However, we don't know why, right? So who knows? Maybe it was someone and who... And by attacked, you mean physically attacked? Physically attacked. So there is actually, there was a tear in the canvas by, made by a visitor. But of course, trying to look into that and actually trying to figure out, well, what would have been so provocative, you know, about it, I, I couldn't actually you know, I had no evidence actually of that, that that attack was maybe not just an attack by someone with sort of anti-modernist tendencies, right? And that it maybe didn't have anything to do with the fact that maybe you could see it as a, as a response to the rise of fascism in Europe. So, you know, so that again, it's kind of a you say in German, a Grafwanderung, you're kind of always sort of, you know, at least I tried in many ways to sort of balance those accounts. And, and in, in many of the cases for the paintings, really leave it open for interpretation, because I actually think that's what's so wonderful about Beckmann. I sort of think you could you can come at it. You can you can bring a lot to the table. You can you can have a wonderful you know formal account, a historiographical account, and even an iconographical you know account. But in the end, you know most of most of the paintings elude us, and I think that's why there is so much Beckman literature out there, and and why um, people return again and again. In fact, I was told when I started working on on the St. Louis collection and you know really diving into to Beckman's work that it would never leave me that I, I would be sort of bitten by the bug you know I was told this by by other Beckman scholars and you know there are amazing art historians who've really dedicated their entire careers to you know to this to these questions Beckman is intensely ambitious and decides that it would be a good idea for him not just to make make it in Germany but to make it in Paris so in the late 1920s, he begins spending a lot of time in Paris. 1929-ish, I think, is is kind of a, a, a year in which he's mostly in France. And St. Louis naturally has one of the the major paintings of of that early Parisian period, the Bath. I guess I think of it as Beckmann addressing the French tradition of paintings of of women bathing and making that tradition his own. How do you think of it? Well, I think that's a. I think that's actually a, a wonderful way to think of it. I mean, I think you know, it's not a tradition that's new to him. Obviously, in the 1920s, you know, we have talk a, a bit about that later, and sort of what's been seen as his response to to Manet's Olympia, uh, with a canvas that's also in the in the St. Louis collection. So certainly, you know, he's 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 a painter of nudes, Beckman. He's really someone who you know, is, is kind of in love in many ways with, I think, the, the female form. And here in the bath, you know, you get this monumental figure. And of course, you know, for most uh, accounts, the, you know, the, the, most fun people have had has been sort of, you know, trying to figure out, you know, is this actually depicting a, a real tryst between Beckman himself, who, who's in the tub, and his uh, first wife, Minna Beckman Tuba. And, but from a, a perspective of the history uh, of art, you know, it's doing so much in kind of adding to that, to that tradition. I mean, I like to think of 
you know, her activity, which is again, elusive, you know, is she, is she drying herself off? Is she going to join him in the tub? You know, she's, she's almost tied, tied up vertically, right? So it's, it's almost as if the nude has been sort of, you know, turned from her side, you know, to, to a standing position. And, and that's just the kind of sort of playful, Again, also with space itself, we're also, you know, maybe kept kept at a distance with this uh, chair in the foreground or with this incredible divide to the to the right, right. And again, a very conscious meditation on space itself is, you know, does that sort of plane of black. Why do we kind of read that as on the right hand um, side? On the right hand side, of sort of going along the entire side. You know, why do we read that as as actually kind of pushing us? back and out of the space. And, and Beckman uses these kinds of devices, repoussoirs, quite, quite frequently, actually. And if you, it's just alone in the St. Louis collection, you know, you see it sort of appear again and again as a, you know, as a, as a way to, to complicate the, the, the pictorial space. Something he gets from Degas, something he gets from Matisse. The other, the other kind of indicator, if you will, of Beckman's ambition in this painting is the female bather's thigh is either borrowed from Michelangelo's Night or Matisse's 1907 Blue Nude, probably a little bit of both. It's a it's it's a kind of remarkable, physiologically impossible part of the painting. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and physiological impossible is sort of you know the light motif, right? <laughs> and I think and that's you know I'm I'm I I encourage people to you know to try it, you know, see can you can you sort of strike these poses, you know, and that's and that's what it is. It is you know it is standing up. <laughs> yeah, it's part of it's part of his you know it's it's his incredible knowledge, obviously, of, you know, the art historical tradition, but also, you know, a philosophical tradition. He was an amazing, you know, avid reader and watcher of films. I mean, he was, you know, it's sort of incredible when, you know, you look at the, the sort of amount of material he's he's kind of amassing, you know, before he, he stands in front of that canvas. And I think that's, again, you know, really one of the exciting things that kind of, you know, make make the work so so much fun uh, to both look at and, and write about. My guest is Lynette Roth. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And now back to my conversation with Lynette Roth. Beckmann eventually returns to Germany, not not to Frankfurt, but to Berlin. And when he gets there, things, if you will, given given German history of the period, are almost immediately difficult for him. What is the environment into which he returned to Germany, into which he moved into Berlin, and how do we, or where do we maybe begin to see that come into to the work? First of all, he sort of never left Germany in a way. He had still been teaching in Frankfurt, but he's spending so much time in Paris that it it, it may have even actually been an issue with the Schädel Schule in Frankfurt where he was teaching. But so so basically, he's he's in he's in Frankfurt and loses that position then in in 1933 along with many of his colleagues with the you know the sort of beginning of the of the Nazi period and and the idea you know, that a modernist artist is not going to be part of, of the school and, and the teaching going forward. So, you know, he's lost his position 
and decides to then move to Berlin. And the reason that he actually gives, or that his wife later describes as, you know, sort of the reason for that move was, you know, really to kind of, in many ways, sort of disappear in the in the capital in a larger city. Because in Frankfurt, he's, you know, he's very much a part of, of a community that is, you know, being dismantled. And so he does go to Berlin and continues to work and actually also begins to make uh, sculpture which was a, a very significant and sort of surprising move um, at that, you know, that late in, in his career. He's, Including a self-portrait bust that's in St. Louis's collection. That's right, yeah. And that's, you know, those were works that only few at the time could even be cast in bronze because, you know, there was sort of no market for it or very small market for, for those early sculptures. And so most of the bronzes were actually then cast uh, posthumously from those some of those early works. So the the St. Louis self-portrait was one of these later casts. But so so basically he goes he goes to Berlin and he continues to work and then we get this kind of shift where he's also working three dimensionally. So we we've talked already about, you know, the his interest in pictorial space and, and thinking about those sort of larger questions of painting. And then this move to the three-dimensional object is, of course, very striking. And he also begins to to uh, complete or to work on uh, his first of many of his triptychs. And that uh, there's also a, a triptych, the acrobats, in the St. Louis Art Museum collection. And, and so it's really, in many ways, a very important time, this shift in Berlin. And he ends up staying there until 1937, and, you know, a lot of people have asked me, well, why? You know, why it was when it was so clear, obviously, he'd lost his position. Beckmann, like a lot of other people in Germany, really sort of thought, you know, maybe maybe there's a possibility. Maybe, you know, maybe it's actually not going to be such a problem to be in Germany. And, of course, by 1937, it's very clear that, you know, he really will have no future uh, to work as an artist uh, in Germany, and that's when he and his wife leave uh, for Amsterdam. So there's a painting from, kind of hard to discuss the dating of this painting, uh, The King, in St. Louis's collection, because it kind of has two dates, two very distinct dates. So uh, we'll have images kind of both before and after on, on manpodcast.com. But Beckmann makes a pretty substantial painting called called The King in 1933. He exhibits it in in that state in 1934 at the Carnegie International, for example, which is uh, one of the ways in which we have a photograph of how that painting existed in 1933 and 1934. And then Beckmann revisits the painting in 1937, changes it up pretty substantially, and that's how the painting exists today. What was the difference between how the painting looked in 33 and 37, and why did Beckmann change it? Well, in 33, when he completes the, you know, what I uh, referred to as, you know, I sort of referred to two distinct campaigns on on the work, and basically you can actually identify Beckmann. Uh, Beckmann is someone who loved uh, to paint himself, and so there are more than... 40 self-portraits. And, and of course, there's there's a lot of discussion about what is a self-portrait, what isn't a self-portrait. And so I've kind of left, you know, some of that. I've sort of tried to depict that in the book as well. But it's, you know, it's 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 pretty clear. It's a, it's pretty decisive that it was a portrait of the artist and his wife, Kwapi's second wife, Kwapi Beckman, who's sort of kneeling uh, in front of him. And he's dressed as, as a, you know, with a crown and, and a, a, a tunic and is blocked in the initial painting in which you can really read their features by the body of of the kneeling figure of the woman who's been identified as his second wife, Kwapi Beckman. And there's a figure in the background also shrouded, but whose face is still quite visible. And already then it, it felt in many ways a, as a painting, as the title indicated, the king, possibly a, a theater scene. Beckmann loved to depict himself and others also in, in costume, in theatrical costumes. He loved going to the theater? He loved going to the theater. And actually theater in during the course of the 1930s and 1940s actually becomes a key motif in his work in relationship to the Second World War. And 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 so theater is you know it's operating here on on a, a number of levels and in fact actually in thinking about the 33 version of the painting or sort of the first initial state I noticed in his he kept very accurate records of his paintings in a what's called the picture list and there it was actually a different title initially for the 33 painting in his picture list uh, which was 
very difficult to read, you know, nearly impossible, and, and I sort of hazard a guess that it might refer to the to the capital of Cyrus the Great. I'm going to actually not probably pronounce this properly now, but Pasagade near Pasopolis. And again, we see Beckmann's interest actually in Eastern traditions, the, the far Eastern influence actually of, you know, the outfit of the kings wearing these sort of hoop earrings and and even the way he's sort of seated can be related to, to depictions in, of Far Eastern kings. So, so you have that. And then when the painting comes back from the United States, also interesting to note that you know, Beckman is still able in 34 to send a painting to the Carnegie International. You know, he sends it out himself from Berlin. It comes back to him in Berlin. So we see that he's still... He's still working in some in some instances and through 1935. He's actually still exhibiting in Germany. So so you can see why maybe possibly you know he felt that 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 he could continue to live in and work in Germany during the Nazi period. It's worth noting that he maintains friendships and patronage arrangements with collectors who are either Nazis or closely affiliated with Nazis. That's right. That's right. And so he's you know in many ways he also for a while has a kind of you know. A position where he's able to also, and and even when he's in exile in Amsterdam, he's able to kind of, you know, get through that period, often through the support of still of of his, you know, former sort of Frankfurt circle in that remained in Germany and and did have some had affiliations with with the party, you know, he's 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 sort of able to kind of um, continue doing his his work thanks in many part to those those uh, relationships so so the painting comes back and then Beckman uh, leaves with his wife in 37 for Amsterdam and really once you know he gets there one of the first things that he does is actually starts to rework that painting and of course that has been then interpreted pretty unanimously as you know a response to the situation of exile in Amsterdam you know the the um, having to leave Germany or you know, knowing that, that there was no future for him there and, and leaving and returning then to this earlier canvas and adding um, incredible amounts of, of black, darkens the everywhere. entire, everywhere. He darkens the entire canvas with black and very different kinds of black. So some of it is incredibly viscous. It almost looks like, like India ink coating, you know, the figures. And then in other areas, like the, the eyes of, of the female figure, you get this sort of incredibly encrusted, dark, thick paint, you know, also sort of simulating a kind of blindness. The, the faces are obscured much more. It's much more difficult to sort of, you know, recognize the artist himself. And and he and he increases just the amount of sort of what's going on in in the canvas. So you get again a kind of tight claustrophobic feel. And and at the center, this kind of incredible sort of cacophony of hands and movement and agitation, uh, which of course has been read, you know, through through his own biography and that and that move to Amsterdam. And, you know, I temper that again also a bit in the book, only because, you know, with his first move to Amsterdam, of course, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's affected by this personally. Uh, and it could be a, a kind of, you know, fear of fear of the unknown or a defenselessness. But, but the figure of the king, the figure of Beckman, you know, still actually dominates this canvas. It's not a, it's not a cowering into darkness. It's, it's actually a, almost, you know, the, the way that I, that I read it, almost a declaration of, of himself and, and something that he goes on constantly in his writings, you know, throughout, throughout his lifetime is, you know, the, the importance of autonomous art making. So again, the, you know, the fact that art is not to be in the service of politics, and again, that it is a kind of autonomous act, and that the artist is, you know, autonomous. And I think that's, that's the way that I, I kind of read this, although it, you know, it has this sort of darkening, foreboding, especially the figure in the background is now shadow and profile, um, almost, you know, holding, still holding up that hand, but, you know, really now is read even more as a kind of gesture of, of caution or, or warning. And, 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 and for me, anyway, given that he reworks it in 37, which is kind of a key moment, it almost, you know, because Beckman is making himself a king, it almost, to me, reads like he's separating himself from from the state of his birth and creation. So you mentioned acrobats a few minutes ago. That's the triptych in the St. Louis collection. Beckman painted nine 
triptyches. Six of the nine were painted in this period, in this kind of Berlin slash Amsterdam period. There are two paintings in St. Louis that feature acrobats, if you will, the triptych and the painting acrobat on the trapeze. I guess first, is there any? I, I mostly want to talk about acrobat on the trapeze, but is there anything in in the triptych that you think is kind of particularly important to mention, given that it's painted between 37 and 39 on the eve of, of a fairly major cataclysm? Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, the triptych, obviously, you know, for, for me, from the works, the works of the St. Louis collection, you know, I think it's here where even more so for me than in The King, I, I see the, the acrobat's triptych as actually Beckmann's reflection on the the, the pending war and the fact that, of course, you know, he and his wife are following very closely um, the developments in, in Germany and, and Europe more broadly as they're in Amsterdam exile. And that the painting may, the triptych may not have started out that way. And that's kind of why I like the comparison of the acrobat's triptych to the king is that I see them both as, I mean, obviously we know the king was a transitional canvas that he first started and then changed uh, drastically after moving to Amsterdam. But he may have actually started the acrobat's triptych in Berlin as well and made then important uh, changes and additions uh, to it after the start of the of the Second World War. And and Beckmann's depiction actually in that triptych in the right panel of, you know, the, the war god Mars. And actually de- he describes it himself in a letter to his dealer in which, you know, the dealer is basically saying, you have to explain this, like the, this triptych, this painting, you know, like, and it's, it's gone, it's been sent to the United States. And Beckman says, I don't really want to explain my work, right? If people don't understand it, then maybe you should send it back. You know, he's kind of, again, wanting to sort of leave it open, wanting the viewer to kind of come to it and actually not have a, a, a sort of strict iconographic reading. Another reason why I sort of resist that in my own writing, because I actually think, you know, the artist, you know, and Beckman's not the only artist, obviously, who would would like very much um, to sort of leave things open and let the viewer bring, you know, bring to it uh, their own understanding. But anyway, Beckman calls figure with, you know, bared teeth and bloodied hands and that right canvas as the war. And so there I think we actually do get in a way that's not sort of reading into just the, you know, the dates of, of com- the date of completion of this major triptych, but really the artist himself thinking about the, the forum of the theater, the circus, uh, the idea of, he calls three of these triptychs he makes, the theater of life, um, this whole idea of theater as a metaphor for life and for Beckmann a metaphor of the war itself. So um, it's actually a trope we get a lot. And you actually get it a lot in Germany after the Second World War in the sort of ruinscape of of German cities after the Second World War, this idea that, you know, the the, the world has become a kind of stage set or, or theater. And here we see, you know, the, the various realms of the circus, right, the foyer, the sort of backstage area, and then the arena in which the acrobats are are performing these sort of incredible feats. We actually get a sense in which Beckmann, he calls these triptychs his own sort of stage set and sees himself in that way, I think, as, you know, kind of um, if the the war and the bombing and, and everything that's going on around him eventually, you know, kind of overtakes, you know, the, the senses and, and the ex- and sort of life experience, he sees himself then and actually describes himself as sort of all one can do is sort of go on and I'm going to just sort of keep painting, you know, I'm going to keep making my own stage sets. And, and if the paintings are those stage sets, you know, I think this is an amazing triptych for actually, you know, showing us that as a, as a viewer. And again, it's, it's, it's huge, right? So it's, it's three very large panels, which are intended to be really, you know, sort of near life-size figures um, in some, in the central canvas at least, you know, were intended to kind of come at this, I think also physically, bodily, and, and experience the sort of confusion of space. You know, he's, he's not painting triptychs to hide away, right? Even if he can't show them immediately, you know, these are extremely, there's, uh, Reinhard Spieler has done a lot of work on the triptychs and actually says, you know, this is his, like the Titanic uh, in its size, right? This reminds us again of, you know, 
what an ambitious project, right? He's he's continuing to undertake even in exile, even you know painting in a tobacco former tobacco storeroom in Amsterdam, right? He's he's still working on this incredibly not just ambitious scale, but you know the themes and the the sort of layers of meaning, you know, are all are all there. So. And connections across other canvases, too. I mean, Acrobats is 37 to 39. The, in 1940s, Acrobat on the trapeze, and both of these are in St. Louis's collection, is also, I mean, obviously, is also about an acrobat, but is also a big painting. I mean, it's a five-foot by three-foot close-up of, uh, of a dude on a trapeze. One of the things that art historians have loved to theorize about this painting is that it's Beckman himself on the trapeze. You don't really take a stance in the catalog, so I'm going to see if I can get you to take one here. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's Beckman, actually. I yeah. I sort of agree. I sort of agree with his with his wife, Quappy, uh, that it's not. I think. I think there's a sense that we, we like to think that if it's a self-portrait of the artist, then we you know we actually am, are seeing him you know portray himself in this you know precarious situation and this you know everything that that is expressed and the the kind of strangeness of of the you know the moment that's being captured here and i guess i just don't i guess i just don't see it i i, I think it's sort of fallen prey to to a a, a hope you know or, or a, a kind of desire to you know see how many self portraits <laughs> there can be i mean in fact in the acrobats triptych the you know the the figure sort of the I compare to, you know, the the sculpture of Adam and Eve in the central in the central panel of the triptych. There's a sort of young acrobat who's holding a a sphere and he's sort of wrapped wrapping around him as this uh, snake. You know, that's been considered a self-portrait as well. I mean, it sort of starts to feel, you know, I think for me for me what was more what's more interesting actually about the the acrobat is you know you had mentioned before sort of physiological impossibilities right and I see in this you know Beckman really again you know he actually makes changes to this painting which we were able to see in uh in infrared painting being acrobat on the painting the, the acrobat on the trapeze um, he actually made changes that we could see, you know, with the technical investigations that we did, that, that he actually changed the position of that arm that's kind of holding, that the figure's kind of bracing himself with, he made changes and to make it actually even weirder and even less kind of legible. And that, you know, that was sort of, you know, it just showed me, I think, that, you know, these are not, these, these changes are just, they're, they're extremely conscious. And, you know, what's always been sort of strange about the legs, right, which feel almost like almost like the one, you know, leg in the front is kind of not even connected to that body, that maybe it's just something he's kind of, you know, bracing against him. And yet those feet which hold him onto that trapeze, right, keep him from actually sort of falling backwards, this kind of, you know, play um, across the entire composition. And that, given the size and these garish colors really is what kind of creates, I think, a sort of heightened sense of, you know, anxiety, fear, you know, you know, will he, you know, will he manage that balance, right, of course, which then has sort of led uh, to the, to the association of this canvas with, with Beckman's own identification with acrobats, right, and again, why it's been seen as a self-portrait, because he, you know, he, he does like the identification with the acrobat, but he likes the identification with the clown or the king. And and so, you know, again, I think these kinds of roles don't necessarily have to be, you know, literal self-portraits in a way. No, I can hear T.J. Clark gnashing his teeth as I, as, as, as I ask about <laughs> whether biography is in the painting. Two two other paintings from this period that I want to ask about quickly in, in really specific ways. One of them is Young Men by the Sea, 1943, a portrait of four men or boys on a beach with, uh, we see the beach in the foreground, the ocean in the middle ground, the sky, the moon really, in, in, in the distance. One of the figures is holding a red turtle, which is kind of an astonishing thing. There is, there is in art history, a clear iconography of what kind of that, that might mean, especially in Asian art history. And in one of St. Louis's own masterpieces, the great Matisse bathers with a turtle, we see a red turtle. In fact, they really may be the only two examples of that in the 20th century tradition. Does that red turtle mean anything to you or signify anything to you? 
Well, to me, I mean, quite frankly, this was one of the few moments where I actually got into a little bit of iconography. It had, it had been understood previously as a wine flask, uh, I think because of the association of that figure. You know, if you have your, your Apollo, you need uh, your, your Dionysian counterpart on, on the other side. And so Apollo on the right hand side playing an oboe. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the more time I spent with it, the, the more I started to think, you know, actually, I think that's a turtle. And for me, I think... There appears you know, to be a, a rear leg of the turtle across the man's wrist. Yes. That's the reason. Yes, that. exactly. We'll have an image of this in a detail up on manpodcast.com. And I think, you know, the whole idea of this as being a, a, a painting related to the Argonaut. And, and again, Beckman, who's someone who's, you know, reading, he's, he's, he's using, I mean, he's drawing on all kinds of different traditions. We saw saw obviously already a kind of Christian iconography. We saw sort of, you know, Far Eastern and here then also, a, you know, a, the story of Saga of the Argonauts and, and this band of heroic sailors and they accompany Jason on the search for the Golden Fleece. And, you know, when I started thinking about this as a turtle, I actually started thinking about, you know, what moment is this? You know, and you mentioned the moon and I, I started to think much more of this is actually, this is a, this is a, the moment possibly before the departure, right? The, the sun is just starting to rise. You know, it's that moment where you can still see both the sun and the moon at the same time as, as, as the dawn breaks and the tortoise or the turtle, the tortoise uh, itself, you know, travels these sort of great distances. And so that this may be a kind of, you know, a moment of, of departure and that that itself may be also related to, you know, to the, to the Argonaut saga rather than just, you know, being sort of strictly about, you know, a, a depiction of, you know, young men by the sea, which is what he calls it. And, and it's in reference to an earlier painting as well that he did of young men, you know, uh, nudes at the sea, which is, you know, where he's thinking um, all about uh, Cezanne and, and the bathers. And, and here, you know, we get this sort of additional twist. I should add, um, Tyler, that the significance of this painting for St. Louis as well, of course, is that it was actually the, the first painting to enter the museum's collection by Max Beckmann and was purchased by the museum already in 1946. So even before Beckmann came to St. Louis to teach, the museum under the directorship at that time of Perry Rathbone bought this painting. And, and Rathbone actually went to Amsterdam to visit the artist and already started thinking at that time about this major exhibition that they would do in 1948 once, once Beckman had come to St. Louis. So again, there is a real relationship with the St. Louis Art Museum you know, that was beginning even before Beckman uh, came to, to the United States. The last painting from before Beckman arrives in the United States about which I'd like to ask is Studio, female nude and sculpture from 1946. Shows a nude on a bedish thing. Her pose and the plant behind her recall Matisse's great pink nude at the Baltimore Museum. The figure on the left, which appears to be a sculpture, is entirely Beckman's own. The right arm, if it were all there, it's only about a third there is kind of raised as if it might be a fascist salute. What is that figure on the left? I, I read it as, I mean, Beck, Beckman, once I mentioned that Beckman started making his own uh, sculpture once he goes uh, to Berlin after losing his position under the National Socialist. He loses his position in Frankfurt. He goes to Berlin and he starts working also in three dimensions. And he actually works in plaster, plaster and clay, which is obviously, you know, this is the step before casting uh, the work in bronze, which for Beckmann really was ultimately the aim, uh, was to cast the work in bronze. You know, some artists already in that period and, and before, you know, were aiming to have sort of plaster as, as a sort of finished version of the work. So anyway, so he's, he is working himself as a sculptor. And I read it as, you know, if we are to take Beckmann at his word, he calls this painting studio female nude and sculpture, and in his picture list, it went for many years by the title Olympia because it said that Morton D. May uh, suggested that title because of the relationship of it to uh, Manet's famous Olympia of 1863, which we know Beckman saw as a young man um, in Paris, as we have uh, letters that he writes to a, a fellow artist about, about Manet's canvas. But anyway, I read it as a as a, a studio depiction, and and the presence really of sculpture as 
sort of physical, almost living sort of presence in many of Beckmann's paintings, I think is really is really key to this. So I, I point to some others in which you know we get actually sculptures or inanimate objects. Um, there's also another canvas from St. Louis from the St. Louis period in the St. Louis Art Museum collection uh, where, you know, the, the sort of bust uh, head of a, a woman actually sort of, you know, has very animate uh, qualities. I mean, I think, you know, basically what he's doing, if, if what we're looking at is uh, the nude, the model, right, in the studio, um, sort of classic, you know, uh, in the tradition of, of the Odalisque, and then, you know, we get the kind of pairing between male and female, Without the actual presence of a male figure, this sculpture in many ways acts as a kind of stand-in for that. And and you mentioned that the arm, you know, is is missing. A reference there as well, also to, you know, classical sculpture, the the fragment um, itself, the fragmented body, and uh, and in some ways a kind of if you know as many have if if we want to read it as a you know a fascist salute or or just a kind of aggressive motion towards the female body right which is so exaggerated really in its kind of fleshiness and uh, roundness that that it it does actually kind of I, I refer to it as a kind of moment of thwarted violence right so so that that arm is is cut it's been you know for to read it as a kind of phallic symbol has been sort of you know literally uh, castrated and then we have these this knife on the table near the sculptures that the knife of you know actually used to you know to make make the sculpture itself in the space of the studio and yet also is sort of pointing menacingly you know at uh, at the woman and this kind of cut fruit that lies next to it so these kind of you know incredible associations of sort of sex and violence um, that we get in in what he so benignly calls you know studio the fascists salute the arm is cut off. The fascists lost. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think you know, I think I think you could definitely, I think you could definitely think about it that way, you know. And for him, you know, what is the the vitality, you know, vitality of life, you know? I I love his his friend uh, Stefan Lochner, who was also a, a German emigrate to the United States, you know, referred to to this female figure as rivaling the Venus of Willendorf, you know, for her like, you know fertility and, and vitality. And I think, you know, if that is then, you know, the the survival, right? It is sort of the 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 triumph perhaps in a way. But but I think much more just for the moment of that, you know, this sort of interaction, you know, Beckmont always sort of returns to this sort of motif of the the struggle between the sexes. Right. So whether it, whether we're looking at a depiction of, of fascism or or maybe we're also looking at just a depiction for him as well of, you know, the, 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 the male and the female, the kind of battle, the battle of the sexes. And that comes up, you know, throughout his entire earth. In 1947, Beckman moves to St. Louis. He lives there for two years. He spends the rest of his life in the United States. The St. Louis collection has 12 paintings from this period. It's unusually, it's a period that's unusually well represented. Is there a, a unifying theory of Beckmann's art in America? Is there anything that particularly characterizes or, or brings together the paintings he made here? In many ways, I think it, it's a continuation of you know everything that we've seen so far, and everything that you know the the, the career in many ways was you know sort of always building towards. Beckmann's American period was recently the subject of an exhibition and a, and a catalog at the Stadel Museum in Frankfurt, and you know it was really sort of the first, certainly the, the first in Germany, kind of in-depth you know look at at the American period, and and most who've who've written on. Uh, on the American work, you know, have, have talked about, you know, a sense of scale, again, you know, a sort of a, possibly American, influenced by the American landscape or, you know, but if you look back across his work, as we've done, you see that scale is, you know, the scale is always quite large. You know, we have in the American period, there are some very large still lifes, for example, there's one in the, in the St. Louis collection from his uh, New York years, his final years, you know, that is just as still lifes go, you know, extremely extremely large. A lot of discussion about color, that the colors become much brighter, often quite garish. I do think that there is a, a shift in the use of 
color, but maybe also in the use of, of black as a, as a sort of mitigating color or material. So, so much more in the American period, Beckman, you know, sometimes leaves colors to kind of butt up against one another. And, and that kind of lends them a, a you know, a, a more garish quality. And there've been all kinds of, you know, theories about why that is, you know, is it, is it his age? Were the, were the fluorescent lighting, was the fluorescent lighting in his New York studio and the fact that he wore a green visor in order to sort of combat the harshness of the light leading, you know, leading him to kind of paint, you know, in, in this more kind of uh, extreme, with this more extreme palette. I kind of wonder if you've seen Marsden Hartley's in America, because there's, there's some Hartley palette and some Hartley space and some Hartley constructions in, in the New York paintings. Yeah, and I think actually there's a lot of work to be done still on on the the late work. Really, I mean, I think I think in terms of the the Beckman scholarship, you know, like the the pre-war work, which has gotten you know some attention. There've been you know some great dissertations that have have sort of tackled that work fairly recently. But you know, again, the the late work as well. You know, overall, I think I think it's right to sort of sense that this is a you know he doesn't change so dramatically, um, certainly not any more dramatically than he had at any other sort of moment within his in his very long painterly career. And and the reason for kind of even breaking down, you know, at first I was sort of resistant to sort of breaking down his curve into locations, right? Because I, I actually didn't want it to somehow, you know, feel like, okay, well now he's in Amsterdam and now, you know, something very different is happening. Um, but it ended up actually being just the most logical way to approach a, a kind of monographic, you know, take on this collection because we can kind of, you know, anchor him at least, you know, historically, um, biographically, you know, in a certain place. But I see all, all of these moments as, you know, both distinct and and. Uh, extremely interconnected. And you mentioned sort of the the return to motifs. I mean, we've seen him returning to earlier canvases. We see him constantly kind of going back, actually, and reworking things. He does that, for example, in the United States. He goes back and reworks a number of canvases. Actually, one of the nicest surprises of the of the late. Uh, American work was the was the paint was a painting that he did uh, and painted over an earlier canvas from his Frankfurt years completely and that painting had been considered lost and when we x-rayed it when we x-rayed the the later painting there you know there there it was so so he's he's keeping all of these you know, um, that's the carnival mask with uh, green, violet, and, and, and pink, which underneath has a portrait of his former boss, basically, from, from the, the Frankfurt School uh, where, where Beckman taught. Back in the 1920s. Back in the 1920s, and he did an, uh, you know, he did a portrait of, of, of his name was Fritz Wischert. He did a portrait of Wischert back in the 1920s. It was exhibited in the 30s. It was, you know, something that, you know, he considered finished. And, and then it sort of, you know, and I, I think it's actually his wife who, who wrote in his picture list that it was destroyed. And destroyed was understood, of course, previously as, you know, he like literally destroyed it, but he had actually destroyed it by painting over it completely. And it was quite a, quite a amazing and, and really fun transformation in which, you know, Fritz Wischert's head, you know, becomes, you know, from, from his, from his 1920 portrait turns into um, the head of, of the woman in the, in the carnival mask painting, who's understood of as a kind of Columbina figure. So anyway, all this to say, you know, yes, you know, there are certain, I, I mean, I think you can identify the late works, right? It's not that, that there is a kind of continuity that doesn't let us sort of, you know, see a shift in color and, and you know, treatment. But, but for the most part, you know, Beckman stays Beckman. And I, I do think that, you know, to your point about Hartley or, you know, he is in those last, in that uh, little last phase of his life in living in New York. And even when he's in St. Louis, he's traveling, he's, he's looking at, you know, um, as he always did, right? He's he's looking at not only the work, say in St. Louis at that time in the St. Louis Art Museum, but you know he has many artist friends. He's he's becomes very interconnected with you know a certain part of the American uh, art scene at the time. So you know how can that not impact the work that he's that he's doing? Lynette Ross, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. 
Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.